John chapter 4. It's so good to see you. Thank you for braving the old messy weather to come to church today. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate you being here. It's a lot better when you're here. I'm here all during the week and you're not here. And it's not that fun. And so it's so, it's so fun when you show up. Thank you so very, very much. Let's continue our study that we began last week on the subject of do our children, do our children know Christians are called to racial reconciliation? Does your grandchildren know that Christians are called to racial reconciliation? Do, is, is racial reconciliation, is it, is it a, a pattern of behavior in our home? Or is it just something we do publicly to keep from getting in trouble? Do we understand why we're called to racial reconciliation? Do we understand what rec- racial reconciliation really is? Do our children know, when they leave the house every day, do they know that as Christians they are called to racial reconciliation. John chapter 4, I taught on this last week. Let me just do a quick review. John chapter 4 verse 3, So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go. Everybody say had to go. He had to go. He had to go, the Bible says. He had to go. He had to go. He didn't, he didn't, you know, it just wasn't by convenience. He had to go through Samaria So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Last week I told you that uh, one thing, the, the only common thing that the Samaritans and the Jews had in common was they both loved Jacob. Jacob was the father of the Jews. Jacob was the father of the Samaritans. Nothing else they had in common. In fact, they hated one another. They despised one another. The Jews despised the Samaritans. They called them Samaritan dogs. The Samaritans despised the Jews. But both the Samaritans and the Jews loved Jacob. They both loved Jacob. And Jesus found a place of common ground. He found a place of agreement. That's the reason he went to Jacob's well. Jacob's well was there, verse 6, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There we go. There's where we have racial divide, right there. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You know, every four years we get to enjoy the Olympics. Does anybody love the Olympics like I love the Olympics? I love the, I love the Winter Olympics when they come down on those sleds real fast and them guys skiing and jumping kind of reminds me coming off the, the back of the couch. You know, skiing and jumping. I, I just, I just love the Olympics. I love the Olympic Games. I love the Summer Olympics and I love the Winter Olympics. And, the, the Olympic Games is the, is the competition in which elite, the elite athletes of the world come together to compete. And they've worked hard, most of them all of their life. They've committed hundreds and hundreds of hours to be viewed as the very best of the best in their nation. And now all the nations send their very best of the best to a competition once every four years to compete for what is known as the gold medal. 
And the gold medal signifies, if you get the gold medal, it signifies that you're the best athlete in your sport in the world. In fact, the gold medal signifies your superiority in your sport. Everybody else is inferior to your ability in your sport if you get the gold medal. You are the best of the best in all the world. And over the time, all these years that I've watched the Olympics, I've noticed as the gold medalist stands on the platform to receive their gold medal, a song is played. Everybody remember that, how it happens? The gold medalist stands on the platform. They raise the flag of the country of the gold medalist, and they play a song as the flag is being raised. And have you ever noticed they never ask the athlete, what's your favorite song? They never say, hey, who's your favorite artist? They never ask the boys from the South, who's your favorite country music artist? They never ask the boys from the, the North, who's your favorite hip-hop artist? They never ask the people from um, the African-Americans, who's your favorite Motown rap artist? They never ask those questions. They never ask those questions. They play the national anthem of the country which they are a part, and the flag of that country is always flying high. Now, it's understood that though that athlete used their skills, and they used their talents and their hard work, that athlete represents a bigger country. They represent a bigger kingdom. It's not about them. It includes them. It utilizes them, and it, but it's bigger than them. What they're doing is bigger than them. The Olympic Committee wants it made known and clear that the athlete performed their world-renowned feat under the flag of the kingdom they represent. Well, Pastor, what does that have to do with us today? Well, this is what it has to do with us. God has a kingdom. God has a kingdom. It's made up of citizens. Some are black. Some are white. Some are yellow, some are red, some Hispanic, and various other backgrounds. And God never intended for the individual's uniquenesses to cause the citizens of his kingdom to lose sight of the flag flying over them, which is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime my whiteness supersedes my Christianity... And then, then I have gotten out of bounds. Anytime my blackness supersedes the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I've gotten beyond the borders which God has called me to be. Anytime my Hispanicness causes me to be, feel superior to any other culture, then I have gotten beyond where God wants me to be. We're citizens first of God's kingdom. We are Christians. So my question to us is simply this. Do our children know, as Christians, not as white Americans, not as black Americans, not as Hispanic Americans, do our Christians, do our children know as Christians that we are called to racial reconciliation? None of us will, will disagree that America is at an all-time low on this issue of race, culture, and class. 
We're seeing more explosive emotions and outrage than any other time. Last week I shared this with you. There is a volcano of racial tension in our nation. And the lava of suspicion, distrust, and injustice simmers continually. It just constantly simmers. And when an event occurs, that lava comes pouring out. People just, just, it's always underneath the surface. Racial division like a cancer is eating away the moral fabric of our wonderful nation. Politicians and organizations with agendas are playing on the fears of some and the angers of others to keep their suspicions and distrust stirred up all the time. Government does not have the answer to racial distrust. Laws cannot make white men respect black men. And laws cannot make black women respect white women. No amount of money can make Hispanics love Asians in America. This sinful disease of racism, culturalism, and classism is too deep for over-the-counter remedies. Radical surgery is needed in the hearts of people in America. Any disease that has lasted this long and run this deep for over 250 years in the United States of America, Walgreens is insufficient for. We need radical surgery. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has the remedy for this disease. The cure... The cure is found in the transformational work of Christ in the hearts of men. When the love of Christ is shed abroad in your heart, that love of Christ doesn't distinguish between colors. It doesn't distinguish between colors. Thirty-something years ago, Amanda and I, in 1983, we went to a little church in Allgood, Tennessee, about 30 people. And I hadn't been there over a week, a little over a week, and all of a sudden I get a call. And it's from a man who attended the church. And he said, I just want you to know, Pastor, that I won't be back. And I said, well, I hadn't been here a week. You know, <laughs> you know I mean, they are, they're already bailing out on me. Kind of remind me when I came here nine years ago. They were, they were, I got elected nine years ago today to this church, and, and about 20 people, about, <laughs> well, wait a minute. Twenty people never made it to the next Sunday. I mean, they they bailed out on me before I even got there. So, uh, so that's what he said. I'm not coming back. And I said, Well, why? What? And I thought I had I had five sermons and I preached my best one that Sunday that I that I tried out for. Back then, I didn't have many sermons. I mean, it was slim pickings. And I could have understood he's I could have understood he's not coming back. And he said. You know, that's all you got? I mean, if that's all you got, I, I mean, I mean, and that's your best? I'm not coming back. i got to go somewhere where I can get fed. But he didn't say that. He said, I'm not coming back. I said, well, can I ask why? He said, because I saw you drive up in a Honda. I said, oh. he caught me off guard. Uh, caught me. I said, what? I thought he was kidding. I thought he, now he's playing a joke. I said, well, you a Cadillac man, you know, I'm carrying on. And then I realized he's telling the truth. He said, I can't come to a church where the preacher drives a Honda. And I thought, man, it's, one of the, it's not an expensive car. I think it was a Jaguar. 
or a Porsche. I could understand that. Maybe you got a money issue, but a Honda, it was a Honda Accord. Honda Accord, we couldn't afford a church bus, and they had got 120 in one Accord on uh, the day of Pentecost, so I thought I would help God all I can. So it was a Honda Accord, and and he said, no, I can't. I said, you're serious? He said, oh, yeah, Pastor, I'm real serious. I said, why? He said, you don't understand, do you? I said, no, I don't understand. He said, I'm in, I was in World War II. I went over there. Them guys tried to kill me. Them Japs, he's called them. They tried to kill me. And I'm not going to support a church that are trying to support them because they might try to do it again. You see, he had an experience in his life that tainted him, that wounded him, that hurt him. No amount of talking I could do could change him. No amount of education I could do. No amount of preaching at him could I do. But one day, the Spirit of God grabbed hold of his heart, and it changed him, and he became one of the most loyal church members we ever had. But it wasn't because I talked him into something. It was because a transformational work occurred in his life. See, most of us my age or younger, we don't have any, especially of the white culture, we don't have any bad experiences with racism. My family didn't own any slaves. My grandparents didn't own any slaves. But you go three or four generations removed from me, and all of a sudden now, we're getting into slavery times. And our black brothers and sisters, they are just three or four generations away from their families being owned as slaves. So they, though themselves might not be a slave, and though things that might have gotten better for them, they have still, that has been passed down year after year after year, generation, family after generation. Just like this man's children, he was in World War II, and his sons wouldn't drive anything but American-made, and on down the line. See, a lot of things we have nowadays are learned. And today, especially if you're a white American, your racism hasn't been experienced. Your racism has been learned. Because God didn't give it to you. God doesn't give you racism. It's been learned. Therefore, we've got to unlearn some things and allow the Spirit of God to do a transformational work in our lives. All right? Now... Government doesn't have the answer. Education is good, but it doesn't have the answer. It takes a transformational work of Jesus. Weekly, our children are seeing on TV and social media racial tensions that are boiling in our land and literally around the world. Do our children know? Do our children know? My grandchildren were here this morning, the first service. Do they know, as a Christian, our job is to reconcile, not to find fault. As a Christian, our job is to come together, not to separate. As a Christian, we're called to racial reconciliation. Let's go back to John chapter 4. 
Notice what it says. Jesus uh, comes to the woman at the well. And this story illustrates the whole racial barriers in God's uh, view of it. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. Jesus leaves Judea in the south to go to Galilee in the north. And right between the two is Samaria. An Orthodox Jew normally would not even walk through Samaria. They would take the long way around because they didn't even want to get on the dirt where the dogs lived. But the Bible says that Jesus, though he was an Orthodox Jew, had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because he had an appointment with a woman of a different class, a different color, and a different culture. Let me ask you a question. How many God appointments have we missed because we only want to deal with people who look like us, sound like us, and live like us? This woman and the revival that came to Samaria would have never happened had Jesus only been willing to deal with people of his class, his culture, and his color. Being weary from the journey, Jesus stops at Jacob's well. A woman from the community comes to the well to get water. Jesus asked the woman for a drink of water. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Everybody say noon. Now remember that, it's noon, 12 o'clock, noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. Now this is what the Samaritan woman said. Not the Jew to the Samaritan, the Samaritan to the Jew. See, hard feelings are on both sides of the fence. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So here we see the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And then we, Jesus eventually tells the woman about eternal life. It changes her life. Go down to verse 25. We talked about that all last week. Verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, verse 26, I the, I the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with the woman? Notice, notice they are surprised that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. See, it's in them. This racism is in them. Verse 28, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now notice what it says, verse 30. Well, verse 29. Come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? Verse 30. They came out of the town... And made their way toward him. Who is they? Look what it says in verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went to the town and said to the people, the people of Samaria, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be be the Messiah? Verse 30. They, the Samaritans, came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now at this point, we're getting ready to have a revival or a race riot. Because she said a Jew 
came and told me everything I did. Is this a Messiah? A Jew being the Messiah? Lord, no. That's not going to happen, the Samaritan. So we either, all the people from the town rush out there. We're either going to have a stoning or we're going to have a revival from heaven. It's exactly what's going to take place. Verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? So, Jesus ministers to the lady. About the time the lady gets back, the lady, about the time the disciples get back from the, from the city with food, the lady heads toward the city. And all of a sudden, the disciples now have Jesus' attention. They see the lady. They see Jesus talking to her. They don't know what was going on. None of the conversation. They're just amazed that Jesus would be talking to this Samaritan woman. And the lady heads back without saying anything to the disciples. She runs to the city. Now, I did some study on this. It was five miles from the well to the city. Five miles. So the disciples, now remember Jesus had sent the disciples into the city. So Jesus had sent them five miles into the city. They walked five miles into the city. They walked five miles back to the well. So they walked how many miles? Boy, y'all passed math. That's amazing to me. They walked ten miles. And they said, we got you some food. To which Jesus said, man, I got food to eat. You know not of. And the disciples said, What? You done had us walking ten miles and now you got food to eat you know not of? What are you talking about? Now this shows us something about our willingness to minister to people that we're uncomfortable being around. Jesus shows us a strength of soul that is available only when we move past our comfort zone and love those who are different than us. The disciples needed food to eat. They were weary. The Bible says Jesus was weary, but when Jesus got out of the Jews' comfort zone and ministered to people who were different than him, the Holy Spirit's strength and energy came upon him that he didn't need the food he once would need in the natural. And most of us say, well, I'm not going to I don't know how to minister to them. They wouldn't receive anything from me. They don't look like me. They don't talk like me. They won't listen to me. I want you to know if you and I will be willing and obedient to minister to people that God brings into our path, regardless of their class, color, or culture, the anointing, the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will make you an effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know not of. You know, and, and, and they couldn't understand that. They couldn't understand that at all. Now look at the next few verses. Verses uh, number 35. Don't you, Jesus said this, don't you have a saying? It's what he told his disciples. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. How many of you have heard that verse before in church? You've heard that verse? I mean, you, you have missionaries in here. Open your eyes for their ride into the harvest. Look on the fields for their ride into the harvest. I bet I preached that verse a dozen times over my ministry. 
And we talk about witnessing. We talk about going to Africa. We talk about going to India. We talk about going to Japan. Open your eyes, for the fields are wide unto harvest. How many know what I'm talking about? That's usually the context in which we're talking about that. That's not the context of this verse of Scripture. Notice what it says. The woman left to tell people in the city, the Samaritans, a different color, a different culture, a different class. Come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. And the Bible says they, the people of the city, came out there. And Jesus says to his disciples, don't say four months. Don't say you have to go to another country. Don't say you need to raise some money to get a missionary over to so-and-so place. I'm telling you, the fields are white right now under harvest. What is Jesus saying? He's saying your harvest is not in Africa. Your harvest is not in India. Your harvest is not in Asia. Your harvest is in your neighborhood. Your harvest is in your neighborhood. Isn't it amazing that we southern white Americans have spent millions of dollars given to missionaries to go to other nations of the world to preach the gospel. And now the other nations of the world are living in our neighborhoods. They're living in our communities, and we won't even go across the street to tell them about Jesus Christ. See, we're missing our harvest. Jesus is not saying, look on the fields over in Africa, look on the fields in Japan, look on the fields in Jordan, look on the fields in Cambodia. Jesus is saying, look on the field of your neighbor across the street. Your field is white unto harvest. Well, hallelujah, it's the truth whether you believe it or not. Now look at verse 29. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way to him. Verse 39. Jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Notice, many of these Samaritan dogs believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. Now, do you remember when this whole scenario started? Do you remember at what time of the day this whole story started? Noon. Now, at noon, they couldn't stand one another. But because Jesus changed somebody's heart, and Jesus is no respecter of persons, and Jesus shared the cult, the gospel with a different class, a different culture, and a different color, all of a sudden, it started. they started at enemies at noon. By that evening, Jesus has been invited to spend the weekend with them. It doesn't take long to change racial injustice when man's hearts are transformed by the power of the gospel. We've been working on it for 250 years trying to come up with a political formula and the church has the answer. His name is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ. He changed it from noon to that evening. All of a sudden, they go from enemies to be invited over to spend the whole weekend with one another. You say, how does that happen? Well, here it is. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Ephesians 2. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles. He united blacks and whites. He united Asians and Hispanics. He united us into one people. One people. What kind of people? What one? Christian people. He's not asking us to to give up our whiteness or our blackness or our Asian or Hispanic. He says, I just want you to be Christians. Just be Christians. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated. Why don't you like them people? Why don't you like them people? What have they done to you? You don't even know who they are. They just moved into your neighborhood and you don't like them. Why don't you like them? You don't like them because of their color. They've never done anything to you. They've never taken anything from you. They've never harmed you. They've never hurt you. They're just a different color, a different class, and a different culture. So you've learned to not like people who are different than you. The Bible says Jesus has broken down that wall of hostility. So any hostility that you and I have toward a different color, a different class, or a different culture is not something that God gave to us. It's something that we've learned and allowed to fester in us because Jesus broke down the wall of hostility. He did this by ending the system of laws with its commandments and regulations. He made peace. He made peace. He made peace between whites and blacks and Asians and Hispanics. He made the peace. He made peace by creating in himself one new people. Who are they? Christians from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. That hostility has been put to death because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You say, Pastor, you've just taken this too far. No, I haven't. Let me give you another scripture. Let every word be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. This is not a one-time thing. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. I've got uh, seven minutes. Dr. Myers over here says, Pastor, every time you say 20 minutes, you go 40. Well, I've got seven minutes. That means I can go 14. Hallelujah. All right, now, I'm going to go seven. You, you, You clock me here, Doc. Clock me here. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Go over to another story, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Samaritans and Jews, remember, Samaritans and Jews. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus said, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a Jewish man, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be, a a Jewish priest, happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, a Jew, a Jewish Levite, When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. A Samaritan dog. 
as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denira and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In this story, a Jewish man has been robbed and beaten and left for dead. A Jewish man comes by and walks by on the other side. A second Jewish man comes by and pays no attention to him. And finally, a man of a different color, a different class, and a different culture stops and rescues the man. The man, the Samaritan, takes the man to a place of healing and pays for his medical treatment, asking for nothing in return. All at the Samaritan's expense. And the question is asked of Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus informs us that anyone in need regardless of race, religion, values, and culture, is your neighbor. Anyone in need, regardless of race, religion, 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 Muslims in need are our neighbor. They might not be our spiritual brother, but they are our neighbor. Anyone in need, regardless of race, religion, values, and culture, is your neighbor. This parable represents a bedrock truth of the Bible. Every human being is created in the image of God, and every human being has value and worth. Everybody is created in the image of God. Black, white, yellow, red, regardless of your ethnicity or the nation you come from, everybody is created in the image of God and everybody has value and worth. Turn with me real quickly with Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So God created mankind... White mankind, black mankind, yellow mankind, red mankind, Hispanic mankind, Asian mankind, Anglo mankind, Latino mankind, Southern mankind, a few Yankee mankind. (laughs) God made everybody... In the image of God. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God created them male and female. He created them. You know what this scripture says? This scripture says, all lives matter. Over the last several years now, we've gotten this debate on what lives matter. Can I tell you, we're all created in the image of God. Everybody comes under the banner 
of created in the image of God. And if everybody is created in the image of God, everybody has value and worth in God's eyes. So if everybody's created in the image of God, get this, the unborn life matters. The unborn life matters. And any injustice to the unborn needs to have serious uh, uh, adjustment done to it because the unborn life matters. If everybody's created in the image of God, then black lives matter. And the injustices that are done to black lives need to have adjustment done to that. Okay? If everybody's created in the image of God, then Hispanic lives matter. And anybody who does injustice to Hispanic lives, there needs to be an adjustment and something done to correct that situation because all lives matter. Since all lives matter, white lives matter. And if there's any injustice done because you're a white person, then that needs to have some correction done to it because white lives matter. But anytime we take any one of those segments out from under the banner that all lives matter, because all lives are made in the image of God. Any type we take one of those segments out and set it over here, it, uh, regardless of what's going on under that banner, then we have set ourselves up for an independent cause. We've set ourselves up for a kingdom. We are an Olympian who's flying under a different flag. And it should never be that way. All of these lives matter because we're all created in the image of God. So white people shouldn't disregard when people say black lives matter. Because black lives do matter. They're created in the image of God. And any injustice done to black lives because they're black, there needs to be correction done. But at the same time, all unborn lives matter. So any injustice done to them, we need to make sure correction and justice is done for unborn lives. Do matter because we're created in the image of God. Now here's, let's bring it home. Your life matters. Because you've been created in the image of God. You might be disabled. Your disabled life matters. You might be crippled. Your crippled life matters. You might be emotionally scarred. Your emotional scarred life matters. You might be black. Your black life matters. You might be here this morning. Had a lady here in the first service from Vietnam. Her Vietnam life matters. You might be Hispanic. We have a lot of Hispanics here. Your Hispanic life matters. Every one of you matter to God because every one of you have been created in the image of God. And since Jesus' love has been poured in my heart and Jesus is no respecter of persons, I desire to love you because your life matters. Stand with me, would you?